I can't believe Caleb was in seminary. He did not know who John Piper and John MacArthur were. All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us tonight. Speak to us through your word. Allow us to be attentive, our hearts to be receptive, uh, that your word would convict us, uh, would encourage us and edify us and change us, uh, Lord, because uh, we want to live for your glory. Uh, Father, allow us to behold Christ tonight. Uh, Give us eyes to see his glory through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, you uh, see the superscription on top there, uh, written by Asaph. Uh, Asaph was uh, a Levite uh, back in the time of David. He was in charge of uh, music, uh, singing at the temple, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, whenever Asaph would assemble uh, a group of singers under his supervision, uh, they were, of course, referred to as Asaph's bunch. Thank you, thank you. All right. Now, in this psalm, Uh, Asaph ponders out loud a question that those of us who have been Christians for any period of time have wondered at some point in our lives. If God is really a good God, right? And look at verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Like if that statement is true, which I think we all agree it is, then why is it that we so often see the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? That's a tough question. But you've got to love how the Bible doesn't hide from these potentially difficult and troubling questions. Right? As if God were worried that we would lose our faith if we started thinking too much about these difficult things. Right? The Bible doesn't just have answers for our troubling questions. The Bible brings them up to us. Right? Like even if you've never thought about these things on your own, like you're just reading Psalm 73, Psalm 73 brings it up to you. Like, hey, let's talk about why things in life are often backwards from how we might want them to be. And if God's word isn't going to shy away from topics like this, then we who are God's people should not either. Let's let's get right into the text here. Why is Asaph so upset in this psalm? Like, what is causing him so much despair? Well, it's these wicked people. We don't know who specifically he's referring to, but uh, verses 3 through 12, he gives us a a pretty extensive description of what they're like. Look at verse 3. They're arrogant and wicked. Verse 6, they're proud and violent. But it's not just that they're proud and violent. That would be bad enough. But it's that they're open about it. And they adorn these things ostentatiously, proudly, openly, like you would adorn a a fancy necklace or, or a beautiful garment. Verse 8, they use their tongues to talk maliciously and arrogantly and to speak threats. About verse 9, they openly blaspheme against God. And then we see that again in verse 11, as they mock God to all who can hear them, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? But Asaph's problem isn't just that really wicked people exist. No, he's distressed because these really wicked people are prospering. God, it seems, is is blessing them and rewarding them, even though they're so blatantly sinful. It's, look at verse 3, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, 
that Asaph becomes so distraught that he almost stumbles and nearly slips. But there's more. Because it's not just that really wicked people are prospering. Like you can maybe chalk that up to common grace. Right? You say, well, God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Right? That's just the kind of God he is. No, the problem here is not just that really wicked people are prospering. It's that really wicked people are prospering and Asaph isn't. And I think that we see this really clearly by comparing verses 5 and 14. So look at 5. They, the wicked, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. But on the other hand, Asaph, look at verse 14. All the day long, I have been stricken. Same word. Keep your eyes in verse 14. I have been rebuked or chastened, as some versions have it, every morning. But then the question is, well, chastened by who? Chastened by God. And so God himself is the one who is actively bringing upon Asaph all of these afflictions uh, that the wicked are seemingly spared from. And so now we see why he's so distressed. Uh, The wicked, in spite of all of their open sin, uh, defiant ungodliness, blatant evil, uh, they prosper. But I, even though I am trying my best to live a righteous and godly life, I don't prosper. The wicked have no afflictions. They reap the easy and good life, even though they sow all kinds of unrighteousness. And here I am, I'm trying to sow righteousness, but my life is just full of struggles and trials. Like I know in my head, verse 1, that God is good to those who are pure in heart, but that's not what I'm seeing. Right? That, that's not what I'm experiencing. Hence our great theological dilemma. But brothers and sisters, while the psalm raises some like, really profound uh, theological, uh, philosophical questions, uh, we've got to be careful that we don't view this psalm as just kind of like these like, lofty hypothetical thoughts, right? detached from the thinker. Uh, just kind of like, oh, interesting topics to debate. Like if a you know, tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it. Jordan or LeBron or is a hot dog a sandwich? The psalm doesn't present the prosperity of the wicked as this like theoretical debate. Right? Look at what it says in verse 3. Asaph says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This isn't just like a hypothetical. This is Asaph saying, this is killing me. There's this like raging battle going on in his soul because of this envy. Now, envy is something that we don't really talk about it that much. Maybe because it's hidden so deep in our hearts. Maybe it's because it's really embarrassing to confess. Like I would much rather cop to being angry with someone than being envious of them. And because we don't really talk about it that much, there might even be a temptation in our heart to kind of like dismiss it, sweep it under the rug a little bit, even as Asaph brings it up here and say, ah, it's not really that big of a deal. It's a small sin. But the Bible makes it very clear that envy is a big deal. Consider that envy and jealousy are both listed among the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Consider that envy makes a list in Romans chapter 1, describing those who God gives up to a debased mind. Those who practice such things deserve to die. 
consider that a lot of the great wickedness in the Bible, like the stories in the Bible where people just do really evil things against each other, like a lot of it stems from the root sins of envy and jealousy. You think about the first murder, Cain. Why did you kill your brother? He was jealous. He was envious that his brother's offering was accepted and his was not. What is it that caused Joseph's brothers to mistreat him, selling him into slavery and almost killing him in the process? Well, Genesis 37, 11 tells us his brothers were jealous of him. What was like the, the root cause of Korah's rebellion, Numbers chapter 16? Well, Psalm 106, 16 tells us that it was because men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron. And then, of course, the ultimate evil act in the Bible. What is it that caused the Jewish leaders, according to the sovereign plan of God, what is it that caused them to deliver Jesus up crucified? Even Pilate knew, Matthew 27, 18, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. You see that? Envy is no small sin. Envy is a really big deal. We can make it very practical for us. There's literally endless ways in which we can struggle with envy. We can envy that coworker who got the promotion that we thought we deserved. We can envy someone who receives the recognition in the church that we think we should get. We can envy someone because it just seems like they've got everything together in life. We can envy someone because they're better looking than we are. We can envy someone because they have better kids than we do or because they have better looking kids than we do, right? Think about it this way. Our hearts are so wicked that we can literally turn any difference between ourselves and others into an opportunity for envy, an opportunity to become discontent with the job or the wealth or the health or the church or the family or the friends that God has graciously given to us. I don't want this. I want what he has. I want what she has. But I think the temptation becomes especially pronounced for us as believers, like Asaph in the psalm, when we see unbelievers prospering instead of us. When it's the coworker who openly blasphemes God who gets the promotion. Or it's your cousin who never goes to church and his business is just taking off. Or it's your childhood friend who could care less about Jesus, but they still seem to have the perfect family life. Then our envy leads us to like these deeper theological questions about the goodness of God or his sovereignty or whether he actually cares about his children. We'll get back to that a little bit later. Proverbs 14.30 tells us that envy makes the bones rot. His envy of the wicked prospering was just consuming Asaph from the inside. And so on one level, I think it's fair to say that Asaph's problem here is envy and discontentment. But I think we can go deeper than that because his envy reveals an even deeper heart issue within him. It's kind of like you got this onion, and we're just kind of peeling back the layers here, getting closer and closer to the core. Because a deeper heart issue here is that Asaph is overly focused with the things of this world. 
the things of this life. And we see this mindset so clearly when we look at what it is that Asaph is envying in the wicked. Look again at verses 3 through 12. Like when he looks at the wicked, what is causing him to stumble? He envies their good health. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. He envies that they eat such good food. Verse 4, their, their bodies are fat and sleek. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. He envies that their lives are easy and stress-free. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. He envies that they seem genuinely happy, that they enjoy life. Verse 7, their hearts overflow with follies. He envies that they're popular and respected among the people. Verse 10, people turn back to them and find no fault in them. He envies their wealth. Verse 12, always at ease, they increase in riches. And you'll notice a common thread there. All of those reasons for envy deal strictly with the things of this world. They all deal with physical blessings, right? Our bodies, this life. Basically, there's not a single blessing of which Asaph is jealous that has any value in eternity. And so the issue is not just envy. The deeper issue is a love for this world and this life that causes him to envy worldly comforts. Well, let's kind of keep peeling back the onion here because I think we can go even deeper than that. Deeper than his envy, deeper than his love for the world, kind of at the center of all of this, at the core of all of Asaph's problems, is that he has a wrong view of worship. Or to put it another way, his envy and his love for the world reveal that Asaph is pursuing God for the wrong reasons. Right after listing off all the reasons that he's envious of the wicked, verses 3 through 12, this is what he says in verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That's a powerful statement of despair. A feeling that he is wasting his time, wasting his energy trying to follow the Lord. Basically, in the context of the verses that come before, what he's saying is why am I trying to be holy and why am I pursuing God if those guys who don't care about holiness don't pursue you, they get these things and I don't. Like if that's going to be the case, then Billy Joel was right. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. And so he reveals his, his true heart motivations for pursuing God. It has nothing to do with God's worthiness, has nothing to do with God's greatness, has nothing to do with God's majesty. It has nothing to do with God at all. It's all about Asaph. It's all about Asaph receiving the earthly blessings that God can give. And so Asaph is using his worship of God as a means to serve the one whom he really worships, which is himself. Asaph's deepest problem, at the core, at the center, is an idolatrously wrong view of worship. Those of you who are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, 
we see a little bit of the older brother in Asaph here, don't we? The older brother in the parable says to his father, I served you many years and I never disobeyed your command, but you never gave me a young goat. And Asaph here in Psalm 73 basically says to God, I kept my heart clean and I washed my hands in innocence, but it was in vain because you never gave me all of those things that you blessed the wicked with. Both reveal that their deepest motives for obedience weren't love, weren't delight in God, but were the material blessings that they could get from God. And to both reveal what the true object of worship of their heart was themselves. But thank God, the psalm doesn't end there. If it did, all of our troubling questions would remain. This would be uh, perhaps the most depressing sermon you've ever heard. You would wonder if the psalmist became apostate. If you read through the psalms, you'll notice that a lot of them have an inflection point. Kind of, kind of a, a turning point. The psalm starts in despair, crying out, and then boom, right? There, there's like this turning point at which the psalmist turns to God or, or is delivered out of his affliction by God. Well, that's verses 16 and 17 in our psalm. Right? Verses 1 through 15 are all despair. And then just like that, the psalm takes a quick turn. If you're a Bible marker, uh, go ahead and underline or put a, put a star next to these verses, verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The key to the turning point is that Asaph stops looking around himself and begins to look upward to God himself. He shifts his focus from the things of this world, uh, his circumstances, to the God who is sovereign over this world and his circumstances. Well, when we see that is in the first 15 verses, right, before the inflection point, before the turning point. First 15 verses basically is Asaph describing what's going on around him, right, using the third person. So there's a lot of they, they, they. And thinking in that way, right, only thinking about they and them, seeing things from that perspective, makes him, verse 2, almost stumble and almost slip. Like he's on the precipice of falling into deep despair and perhaps even turning his back on God. But now look at the 11 verses that come after the turning point. It is mostly written in the second person. You, you, you. He went into the sanctuary of God, and he turns to the Lord, understanding and discerning the world around him now from God's perspective. And so now instead of focusing on all these circumstances that's going on around him, he's talking directly to the God who's sovereign over all. Instead of just trusting what his eyes see, he's now trusting by faith God himself. And so you'll remember the, the three levels of sin that we talked about earlier that Asaph was struggling with, right? MB, uh, love for the world, and a wrong view of worship. Now we can think about how he repents of each of those in the second section. First we see Asaph repents of his envy. Look at verses 18 through 20. He realizes just how ridiculous it is to envy the wicked in their prosperity. 
because ultimately they're going to come crashing down. Just because things seem to be going well in life, that doesn't mean that their downfall isn't coming. Last year, we moved into a new apartment, and so we bought a new couch. Uh, and the couch comes with removable cushions. Uh, now, the point of removable cushions, uh, as far as I understand them, is that you can clean them kind of individually, which is important when you have four young kids. Uh, but to a six-year-old and a five-year-old, the point of removable cushions is to stack them on top of each other as high as possible and then try to balance on them. And so Asher and Ellie are, are doing this, and they've got like four or five stacked up high, and both of them are standing on top. Now, when you uh, see your kids doing something so dangerous and foolish, you know, as a parent, naturally, you take out your phone and you start recording. <laughs> uh, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, this, is, this is definitely not going to end well. This is definitely going to come crashing down. And they did, and I got it all on video. There you go. Look at verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. The wicked, those who seem to prosper now, oh, they, they are in slippery places. Reminds us of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right? The verse that Edwards went off of in uh, that sermon was, Deuteronomy 32, 35, their foot shall slide in due time. The wicked, they may look like they're going strong, they may look like they're prospering, but it's just a matter of time before God makes them fall to ruin. Contrast that to verse 2. Asaph, God's child, almost slipped, but God didn't let him fall. But the wicked, oh, they surely will fall to ruin. And to all their prosperity, the prosperity that Asaph was so tempted to be envious of, it's verse 19, destroyed in a moment. It's swept away. And you've got to love this imagery in verse 20. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You know when you have like a, a really vivid dream and you, you really feel like it's real? But then what happens? Your alarm goes off, and it doesn't matter how real it felt or how long it was. It's gone just like that. It's like what Isaiah talks about in chapter 29 when the hungry man dreams that he's eating, but then he wakes up and he's still hungry. Dreams aren't real, right? They vanish when we wake up. Asaph now realizes that that's what the prosperity of the wicked is like. And so how ridiculous is it? to envy the wicked in their prosperity. It's like if your friend tells you, hey, I had a dream last night. I dreamed that I was a millionaire, and it was awesome. And then you go off into your corner, and you throw yourself this big pity party, and you just seethe with envy. And you, I am so jealous that he had that much money in his dream. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. But that's what envying the wicked in their worldly prosperity is like. It's, it's being jealous of something as fleeting and as meaningless and as temporary as a dream. Their prosperity is a mirage. Their destruction is sure. And so Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18 tell us, Let not your heart envy sinners, 
but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Next, let's think about how Asaph repents of his love for the world. Look at verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph saying, as far as my understanding of the world went, I was basically thinking like an animal. Animals don't think about eternity. Right? Beasts are only focused on creature comforts, right? things of this world, momentary pleasures. And when we seek only those things, when we think and reason only from that perspective, when our love for this life and this world controls and compels us, uh, we're really no different from animals or beasts. And so Jude calls people like that unreasoning animals. Psalm 49.20 says, Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Friends, part of what it means to be made in God's image is that we're not to be ruled by just the here and now. Right? God has put eternity into man's heart. God's given man that unique understanding and perspective. Asaph, in his previous love for the world, could only think about the immediate horizon. Uh, what earthly blessings do they have that I don't have? What temporal pleasures do the wicked enjoy that I don't? But as Asaph comes to the realization that in his disregard for eternity, he was thinking no differently than an animal, he confesses his brutish ignorance to God. Brothers and sisters, when we see the wicked prospering and the godly suffering here on earth, as we must admit, we often do see. And then that leads us to draw firm conclusions about God and his character and his sovereignty and his goodness. It'd be like hearing only the very first note of Beethoven's fifth and concluding that it's a terrible song. No, like keep listening. Or seeing only the first floor of the Empire State Building and saying, yeah, this really is not that tall of a building. No, right? you look up. Or to use a biblical example, it's like seeing an army of Syrians around the city and thinking, you're surely doomed. Or Elisha's servant was quick to come to an incorrect conclusion until God opened his eyes to see what was really going on. Well, in the same way, God opened Asaph's eyes to see what was really going on, that everything we see and experience in this life is like this infinitesimally small slice of eternity. How brutishly ignorant it is when we forget that and just focus on this slice. But now armed with that understanding of eternity from God, Asaph gets it. Look at verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. He gets it now. The psalmist, who was previously so enamored with the world, now sees from the perspective of afterward. He now has eyes to see eternity. And as he looks to the afterward, 
And basically, it's the same word in Hebrew as in verse 17 when he's talking about the end of the unbelievers. Uh, you could translate verse 17, I discerned their afterward. Well, he sees his afterward, that God will receive him to glory. He sees their afterward of being destroyed and ruined because of their sin and unrighteousness. It's like, wow, envy, discontentment, complaining to God just seem so ridiculous. Well, friends, maybe you have come here tonight and you're not so sure about your eternity. Uh, Like you couldn't say with full conviction and full confidence, uh, God, afterward, you will receive me to glory. You're not sure where you're going to spend eternity, uh, where you're going to go afterward. Well, friends, the, the Bible says that our life is like a vapor. And experientially, you know that to be true. It seems like just yesterday that Caleb, Dylan, and I were in a discipleship group together, and none of us are married or had any kids. And just like that, right here we are, I think we've got 11 between us. Right? Life is but a vapor, and it just goes by so quickly. And no matter how happy you are in this life, uh, no matter how prosperous you are in this life, it's all coming to an end, and it's all coming to an end much quicker than you think. To be so focused on the here and now, this life, so as to not be prepared for eternity, that's thinking like an animal, right? That's thinking like a beast. As a man or a woman created in the image of God, let me tell you, you're better than that, right? You need to know where you're going to spend eternity. And as it stands right now, if you're not trusting in Christ, there's really bad news. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you look at verses 3 through 12 and you say, well, I'm not that bad. Well, that may be true, but you're still bad. You've still sinned against a holy God. And because of that sin, you deserve an eternity in hell. Which means that right now, like right this moment, you are in that slippery place. And in due time, your foot shall slide. But it's not too late, because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to acknowledge your sin, to acknowledge that you can do nothing to save yourself, and cry out to the Lord to save you. To believe the gospel, that God loves sinners like me and like you, that he sent his son Jesus to die in our place, to take all of our sin, the wrath that it deserves, and in exchange he gives us his perfect righteousness, so that you can be forgiven, made right with God, be his child, so that afterward he will receive you into glory. Friend, if you're not sure about your eternity this night, repent, believe the gospel, and be saved. Today, you can go from being God's enemy to God's child. It's a fresh understanding of that truth, that glorious truth that because of his glorious grace, the God who should be against him is actually for him. It's a fresh understanding of that truth that changes Asaph's entire worldview. The God who earlier seemed so distant to Asaph, the God who earlier seemed like he just didn't care, 
Well, now he realizes that that God, that same God, has been with him all along. And so the same Asaph who says, verse 14, all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Basically, you are continually against me, God. Now he says, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. God's given him an entirely new understanding of his suffering. A biblical understanding of his suffering. Suffering as a means that a loving father uses to conform his children into the image of Christ. And so the reason that God has allowed Asaph to suffer is not because he's against Asaph. It's actually the exact opposite. It's because he's for Asaph. Because he loves Asaph. Because he's continually with Asaph. Peter picks up on the same theme in his epistle. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why are we grieved by various trials? It's so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Biblical understanding of how things are in this world. Uh, Trusting that a sovereign and loving God is for his people. Uh, Trusting Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so if the wicked prosper and the righteous don't in this life, that's not just like, oh, that's how things are, or them's the breaks. No, that is how a loving and sovereign God is working all things for the good of those who are his children. Like, how things are in the universe, no matter how unfair they may seem to a a brutish and, and worldly thinking, they're exactly how a loving God has ordained it for the maximum benefit of his children and for his glory. You think about that. It's not that things aren't the way you would like them to be, but hey, you know what? Uh, God's going to help you to tolerate your miserable existence. No, it's that things aren't the way you like them to be by design. Because an omniscient and sovereign and loving God knows better than you and is working all things for your good. God's not saying, hey, I'm really sorry about these light momentary afflictions, but I promise you I'll make it up to you with some eternal way to glory. It's 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Like, he is using those very things to bring us to glory. And who could say it better than Spurgeon? Quote, Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Once again, remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that? That brings us to the third aspect of Asaph's repentance, which is about his wrong view of worship. Previously, he's viewing his pursuit of God and his pursuit of holiness as uh, merely the means to some earthly blessing from God. 
God, I'll scratch your back uh, by pursuing holiness if you scratch mine by giving me earthly prosperity. Well, Asaph realizes now how uh, ignorant he was, and with his new mindset, now he can say, look at verses 25 to the end, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. In my sinful envy, I am so tempted to desire everything on earth that the wicked have. But now, Asaph says, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God, you and you alone are my heart's greatest desire. Paul says the same thing many centuries later. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. But notice how far Asaph's thinking has come. It's not just that God is better compared to everything on earth. It's that God is better compared to everything on earth and everything in heaven. All the other benefits of heaven. Whom have I in heaven but you? Brothers and sisters, heaven will be filled with glorious things. It, it will be wonderful to live forever. It will be wonderful to not go to hell. It, it will be wonderful to not be sick or suffering or sad, uh, to see loved ones, to eat and drink and enjoy all the beauty of the celestial city. But Asaph realizes no joy or benefit of heaven compares to the presence of God himself. In your presence, there is the fullness of joy. And so we sang it earlier, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Asaph's come to see God not only as a greater joy than everything here on earth, but as his greatest and ultimate joy. Right? God is not a means to some greater joy, but God is the end, right? the pinnacle of all joy. Brothers and sisters, we need to get this. Our happiness as believers hinges on whether we get this or not. Right? God himself is our greatest treasure. God himself is the ultimate object of our worship and our joy. Because until we get that, there's just going to be a lot of verses in the Bible that make absolutely no sense. Psalm 84, 11, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 34, 10, Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Like, how can those verses be true when Christians are poor and hungry, suffering and afflicted, persecuted and martyred, well, it's because what Christians regard to be good things are not what the world regards to be good things. The world looks at wealth and food and comfort and ease and says those are the ultimate good things. And when we see through that same worldly lens, as Asaph does in the beginning of the psalm, 
we look around us and we say, well, Psalm 8411 is not true. Psalm 3410 is not true. Uh, the, the wicked prosper. The righteous lack and they suffer. Like, God, what are you doing? But when we value things properly, when we see God himself as the believer's highest treasure, then we reassess everything around us. We look at the wicked. We see their, their worldly prosperity. We see everything that they have, but without God and without hope in this world. And it's not envy. It's pity. Our heart breaks for them because of their great poverty. And we look at ourselves, the children of God, in our relative worldly lack, in our suffering and our affliction for Christ, but with God holding our right hand and afterward receiving us into glory, with God as our true desire, with God as the strength of our heart and our portion forever, and our heart rejoices. And we say with the psalmist that we lack nothing. We've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We say with Asaph, but for me, verse 27, I don't care what the wicked say or do, but for me, it is good to be near God. That's all I want. That's all I need. Brothers and sisters, we, the people of God, must actively remember that truth. In Christ, all things are ours. Because God is our portion, we will never lack. Christ is mine forevermore, and so we're good. John Owen wrote, uh, quote, The great sin of believers is that they do not make as much use of Christ's bounty as they might. How true that is. How sad that is. Brothers and sisters, we have been united to the one who in himself is fully satisfying the only true delight of our soul. And so as we close, let's ask you one question. I think this is a question that we all need to be pondering in the quiet of our hearts, a question that's really revealing in terms of where our hearts are with God. And it's the question that Asaph is wrestling with throughout the psalm. Why do you worship God? Why do you worship God? Why do you pursue holiness? Why do you say no to sin and yes to righteousness? Or to put it in the language of Psalm 73, why do you keep your heart clean and wash your hands in innocence? Is it for the approval of others? Is it to earn the respect of your friends at church or your pastors or your family? Is it to somehow make God your debtor? Where he then in turn has to bless you? Is it so he'll answer your prayers for material blessings? Friends, to the extent that any of those motives are the reason behind your pursuit of holiness, it will lead to and leave you in despair, because ultimately those rewards are so trifling, so trivial. Now, Psalm 73 and the Bible as a whole presents an entirely different motive for why we should be holy, why we should pursue God. The greatest possible reward that God could offer is himself. 
Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's what we want. We want to see the Lord. Or John, 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Look again at the beginning of the psalm, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It really wasn't a simple route to get there. Like Asaph had to really wrestle with some difficult things. But he ultimately does come to that exact conclusion. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What does Jesus say about those who are pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Let's pray. Father, we want to see you in your glory. We want to spend eternity with you in your presence where there is fullness of joy. Lord, help us, train us by your Spirit to store up our treasures in heaven, to have eyes to see eternity, to look to that which is everlasting and not be so focused on the things of this world. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we view you and our worship of you as a means to something else. But Lord, forgive us. And Lord, sanctify us and change us, Lord, that our heart's true desire might be you and only you. For whom have we in heaven but you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.